I think a great point. Like, first of all, we should just curb marketing and advertising when we're talking about drugs, period. Like, we need to be really rational about it. But then even with cannabis, we're like, you can't do that much harm. I think that uh, you suck all the fun out of it, right? When you go to a dispensary and it's really clear that you had like focus groups and marketing people who have probably never even used cannabis, like sitting there and designing how to suck the most profit out of you. Um, that's not cool or fun. It's worth, I think, a lot of work uh, because whatever we end up doing, whether we go the corporate route or the, the people route, we're gonna be stuck with that for generations down the line. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. How fantastic is it that there exists a plant which evolved chemicals that it produces to ward off pests and these compounds just so happen to act on human receptors in the body in profound and beneficial ways. For good reason, about 150 million people use cannabis, according to the World Health Organization. That's around 3% of the global population, or the entire population of Russia. In most places, smoking the flowers or extracts of this plant can come with some steep legal consequences. Long prison sentences, heavy fines, loss of civil rights. The state may take away your kids or deny you medical care. You may even get executed. Last year, Singapore, for example, sentenced 41-year-old Omar Bamadaj to death for trafficking a kilogram of marijuana into the country. Egypt once executed a 74-year-old British man, Charles Raymond Ferndale, for smuggling three tons of hashish into the country. And Thailand just legalized medical marijuana, but their embassy in Jakarta just warned Thai citizens not to bring weed into Indonesia or they could face the death penalty. But for some of us, myself included, such dire consequences for using cannabis can seem like a distant nightmare. I regularly get weed delivered directly to my door, and best of all, it's fucking cheap. Edibles, joints rolled in keef, wax with a THC content so high it'll make the room spin, CBN gummies that make me sleep like a rock, whatever I want with some limitations. I don't even have to get out of my pajamas. And it helps me with my sleep, my depression and anxiety. It gives me energy and it helps my digestion. I'd honestly probably be dead if it wasn't for cannabis. I admit that sometimes I forget this privilege, especially as I drive by giant billboards advertising dank sticky buds. Living in California has its perks. But even as we slowly emerge from the dark ages of marijuana prohibition, we're encountering entirely predictable problems. Unchecked capitalist greed. So yes, while it's worth celebrating our emergence from the dark ages of cannabis prohibition, we risk entering into different forms of prohibition, oppression and inequality at the hands of the so-called free market. I'm Troy Farah, and you're listening to Narcotica. Today, we're going to get a little wonky and talk about legal cannabis markets, what they do right, what they do wrong, how they can improve. Our guest is Shailene Title, who has been outspoken on this topic for years and was just a delight to speak with. But first, let me tell you a little bit more about Narcotica. We've been on the air for four years trying to cover drugs from a perspective of compassion, science, and evidence. You can visit our beautiful website, narcocast.com, find all kinds of episodes on psychedelics, opioids, obscure weird drugs like xylazine and salvia, a few on cannabis, and much more. 
You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and all that. Do the like and subscribe thing, please. It helps us out. If you want to support the show, you can pick up merch at narcocast.myshopify.com or just go to narcocast.com and click on shop in the corner. We've got t-shirts and mugs designed by the amazing artist Ryan Gray, whom I deeply love with all my heart because we are married. But seriously, I couldn't be more proud of the cool shit she's making. And lots of other folks are excited about it as well. It's so nice to see photos online of people rocking out their t-shirts or drinking out of coffee mugs that say, this has drugs in it. And this show would not be possible without the support of our patrons. If you are a patron and you're listening to this, you are awesome. I hope you are showered with all the blessings you can handle. At Narcotica, we have bills to pay just like everyone else. Everything is getting more expensive, so it's very humbling that folks care enough about this little podcast that just wants to see some goddamn common fucking sense applied to drug policy. Because we're independent, I can swear like that. And we're not trying to sell you shit. We just want you to be healthy. So, if you want to join a few dozen people that keep Narcotica going, our Patreon at patreon.com slash narcotica is the way to do it. Even a few bucks goes a long way. And we will personally mail you some badass stickers if you join, although you do have to request them personally. We'd love to hear from you anyway, so give us a shout on social media and we'll try to get back to you. Finally, you can help us get the word out by sharing this podcast with your friends and family. Thanks so much, everyone. We deeply appreciate it. And that's it. All the boring technical stuff I hope you listen to anyway. Now onto the show. I'm Troy Farah, and you're listening to Narcotica. Our guest today is Shailene Title, an Indian-American attorney and longtime drug policy activist who has been writing, passing, and implementing equitable cannabis laws for over 20 years. She's a former top regulator with the state of Massachusetts, where she served as commissioner of the Cannabis Control Commission from 2017 to 2020. And she's the author of Fair and Square, How to Effectively Incorporate Social Equity into Cannabis Laws and Regulations, and Bigger is Not Better, Preventing Monopolies in the National Cannabis Market. Currently, her primary focus is running the nonprofit think tank Parabola Center, which pushes for cannabis policies to protect people rather than corporate profits. Shailene, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, let's start with a little bit about yourself. You know, how did you get involved in the cannabis space? You know, um, I've just always enthusiastically felt that drugs, all drugs, should be legal and regulated. And from there, I just kind of went where I was called or where I felt I could make the biggest impact. And for me, that was definitely cannabis legalization because it was just heating up by the time I got started around 20 years ago. And then once we saw legalization um, in place, I felt uh, very strongly that racial equity was the most important piece of it to move forward for the last decade or so. And currently, I think that preventing corporate monopolies is really important for cannabis and for drugs that are going to be regulated in the future. Um, so that's that's my background. Yeah, yeah. Um, in 20 years, I mean, you must have seen a lot of different changes. Oh, yeah. When I started, um, I think everybody that I talked to about cannabis legalization agreed with me, but they would all say it's never going to happen. You're wasting your time. Take it off your resume because you'll never get a job. Um, and today, of course, we're completely at the opposite end of that. Yeah, it's like a resume booster in a way, like putting stuff like that can get you more attention in, in, in some spaces. I mean, that's something I really want to get into is like this attitude that the drug war is over because cannabis is legal in like a couple states. And that's just really frustrating to me. Um, 
I live in California. It's great that that I can get weed delivered to my door. Um, but I think that there's still a lot of room for improvement. Um, and we can get into that about how Prop 64 is crap and everything. But um, I, I kind of want to start with uh, this quote from uh, a tweet from uh, Senator John Hickenlooper of Colorado. A couple of days ago, he tweeted, uh, For all the huff and puff about marijuana reform in Congress, there's little consensus about how to proceed. The solution is simple. Deschedule, regulate, prioritize social equity, and allow the cannabis industry to light up small businesses across the country. And maybe this is a little bit of an oversimplification, but I'm curious, what are your thoughts on on, on this sort of generalization about how to proceed with cannabis legalization? Oh, yeah, I completely agree with him. I, I think he's a bit late to it. <laughs> they used to call him Chicken Looper back before legalization in Colorado. But of course, that's the way forward. But the question is, when you talk in these grand priorities, prioritize social equity, promote small businesses, we all agree with it. But when it comes to how to actually do that, it's a much longer conversation. And I just want to say, yes, it's so annoying when people think that because cannabis is legal in some places that we're done, it's not even just the legalization. It's the way that we regulate, right? And I think that if you are someone who's interested in legalization, you should become interested in regulation too. It's a big opportunity to make an impact. It's very interesting. And arguably, you have an obligation too, right? You can't just push for legalization and then say, okay, we'll just leave it up to the, the government and the corporations to take it from here because we can't really trust them. So I kind of have a really stupid question, um, but cannabis equity, why is it important? And you know, I know that's just like asking why is voting important, but this is something I often hear in certain stoner circles, if you will, like if cannabis is legal, you know, if people aren't going to jail for it, like why do we need equity in our business models? Who cares? Just let it be legal. Why is this important? It's so important because we have to recognize last hundred years or more of prohibition and the effect that it had, because we're not starting from zero. We're not creating an industry from scratch. In fact, there was an underground market and in every state consistently, it's been black and Latino people and sometimes indigenous people that have been disproportionately impacted. And not in a small way, um, in a really devastating way that has affected communities for generations. And we still have people incarcerated at the state and federal level for marijuana crimes. And so it's just a concept of basic fairness that if we are going to change that and legalize cannabis, we need to address all of that pain and harm as well. Yeah, that's a good answer. Really, just you have some compassion, I think, you know, just because it's sort of like a cannabis exceptionalism like oh it's legal for me so i why should i care that it's not legal for other people um and i catch myself on that sometimes you know sometimes it's like like if i travel to someplace like texas or something and and i have weed in my pocket and i'm just like oh wait a second i could become a felon for this and people that live here all the time are constantly living with this anxiety or stress or whatever and Yes, we've legalized it in many, many places, um, but uh, it seems like the first couple of states that legalized Colorado and Washington um, that, you know, they just basically said it's legal. Here you go. But some of these other states have come along and been like, okay, we got to do more than that. We've got to repair some of the harms that the drug war has caused to people. But the, the thing I've heard consistently is that a lot of these equity efforts really fall short, that they just don't accomplish much. 
Can we talk about that? Like, you know, are there any states that you think are doing a good job that are good models for equity or some states that are like really terrible models for this? Yeah. Um, first, I agree. I do the same thing, by the way. It's weird that we're in a place where all of the states are somewhere completely different. And sometimes, you know, people will call me from the South and they'll want help with passing medical marijuana legislation. And it's like, where you are, they did that in 1996. You know, it's like going back in a time machine sometimes. But the state experience is very consistent in a lot of ways. And I think that does mean when it comes to equity, there's a lot of promise. So I'm in Massachusetts. That was the first state to take this concept of equity and uh, actually charge the regulators with making that a priority statewide. And so I was on this commission of five people. We voted on everything. You needed three to pass anything. And I was on a commission with four people who had voted no on legalization. That was kind of the environment um, moving this forward. But basically, our job was in a very general way to make sure that we were equitable and that we were including disproportionately harmed people in our um, in our market, making sure that they're benefiting from from legalization. Uh, the other key points of that, by the way, are we want to take tax revenue and put that back towards the impacted communities. And we also want to make sure that we're paying attention to criminal justice. And that means expunging records, um, other types of record clearance, and also that we're paying attention moving forward to the disparities. Because like you said, the first couple of states didn't really pay attention. One thing that we saw in Colorado was that when you legalized for 21 and above, the rates of arrest for juveniles under 21 actually went up and really disproportionately for black and brown youth. And so in, in future states, like here in Mass, we made sure to address that. So when it comes to equity, um, I wrote the paper that you mentioned um, that's free and open to everyone that goes through how to incorporate equity into cannabis laws. I think New York is the best we have so far in terms of uh, what's being done on paper, but it all depends on how it's implemented. The basic approach that states have been taking is to, or at least I would say the correct approach, is to make sure that you are being as fair as possible in the beginning, um, lowering barriers as much as you can for those that are trying to start businesses, and then making sure that you are putting protections in place so you're not allowing um, any one business to dominate the market too early so that everyone has a chance. And then on top of that, adding benefits and a leg up uh, for those communities that had been previously harmed so that you're leveling the playing field a bit. The thing I would emphasize, though, is that for some reason, I think people understand in other contexts that when you want to do something for the first time, you want to make a big change, you have to try it. You have to collect data, right? You have to compare it against a place where you haven't tried it. Um, just like with research and medicine or anything else, you have to give things a chance to work and then you have to tweak it. But for some reason, when we talk about equity, um, perhaps rightfully, there's this demand that you have to get it right immediately. And unfortunately, that's just not physically possible, right? The way that we have to do it is to try something, collect data, try something new. So if you look at Massachusetts and California who did it first and then Illinois and now New York, as the years pass, 
I do think, actually, I know because of the data being collected that that equity gap is narrowing and we are making progress, um, but it, it's steady and small. That's great that we're making progress on this. And, and you know, I, I heard Illinois was being upheld back when they legalized a couple of years ago as sort of like have a lot of these baked in provisions that are going to help people and sort of undo these harms. But then when it rolled out more, there were all these problems. Um, and I, we can talk more specific about that if you want. Um, but it's like, like you said, it may look good on paper in some places, but it really does have to do with how it's rolled out. Um, in your report, which you which you referenced, uh, Bigger is Not Better, Preventing Monopolies in the National Cannabis Market, which we'll have links to in the uh, in the show notes, uh, you wrote the major comprehensive reform bills being considered at the federal level, uh, which is the Moore Act, the States Reform Act, and the CA- CAO Act, um, would likely eviscerate a key component of social equity programs, trigger a race to the bottom, to roll back valuable public health protections and potentially create dangerous gaps in regulation until new federal rules are uh, promulgated. Tell me about this, because, I mean, there's so many different bills, it seems like, in Congress right now that would fix this problem of this. all these different states have all these different laws. It's confusing. It's absurd that you could travel across state lines and because you're carrying something that's totally legal in one, you're now a felon in another that happens to a lot of people. It seems like what you're saying is these federal attempts to reform this uh, have a huge risk of making the problem much worse. That's right. And and that's a hard thing to say because nobody wants to hear it. And I definitely don't want to hear it, but it's the truth. And if I step back for a moment, you know, with these 20 years, I want to point out that when we were led by a movement, led by people, you know, focusing on stopping the arrests, I think we were pretty effective. And I think we're gradually switching over to a path where it is more about money, capital, and profit than about freedom. And not only is that a bad path because it's sending us down the road to create an industry that looks like every other industry, white-led, led by the people with the biggest resources, and um, controlled by one or two companies, which is bad for consumers and workers and everybody. Um, Not only is it putting us on that unfortunate path, in my opinion, but it's also making us less effective. So I think that federal efforts have largely stalled um, because they're all over the place. They're not unified and they're not focused on freedom, which is what people actually want. I'll give you just the latest example. Uh, In June, there was a federal bill introduced called the CLIMB Act, C-L-I-M-B Act. And if you look at the press release, um, they mention small and minority-owned businesses five times, I counted, and they say that the point of the bill is to help small businesses. If you actually go and read the bill, however, what the bill does is allows cannabis conglomerates to be listed on stock exchanges, which isn't even mentioned in the press release. And so I think it's really important. This is why I started a a nonprofit think tank. It's really important that we read these bills, that we talk about them, um, not just for the right result, but to be effective because nobody is going to be out here working for bills like that um, 
when, you know, it's not even something that you believe in. And then the last thing that I'll say is just taking a step back. Like I said, the, the most important thing for me here is, is regulating drugs well and thinking about psychedelics down the line and how this is all going to go forward. We never stopped and asked the question of, do we want the national legal cannabis market to be run by companies that are traded on a stock exchange? Maybe yes, you know, for transparency reasons, maybe not, you know, but it's something that we need to discuss um, and not just barrel ahead at the behest of corporations and their stockholders. Yeah, that's a really great point. And that brings me to the Safe Banking Act, um, which, you know, just just briefly for listeners, even though cannabis is legal in many states, they don't have access to banks. So because those are at the federal level and it's still legal federally. So you could be taking in millions of dollars a year at your dispensary, um, but you have to basically deal with cash. And then there's been robberies and all kinds of things. It just creates all these different problems. So a lot of people are just like pushing the Safe Banking Act and like this will fix this problem. And they're insisting that this is a huge step forward and that if we just do this, it's going to solve all these problems. But it, it's not dealing with a lot of the other issues with cannabis pro policy that definitely need to be reformed. What are your opinions on this, on the, on the Safe Banking Act? I think you laid it out really well. Um, my opinion is that there's two things wrong with it. One is that if we're going to take one incremental step forward, it should not be about banking. It should be about letting people out of jail. It should be about solving some of the problems that uh, medical marijuana patients face uh, because they still face a ton of issues because of federal illegality. We could, I'm sure all your listeners could think of more. So that's the first problem. The second problem is that even if you accept the premise that we should be fixing banking first, this bill does not do that. Um, what it does is create a safe harbor for banks and then leaves it entirely up to their discretion which businesses they want to work with. And I just don't think we should be leaving everything up to banks as a solution. I am working with uh, the Cannabis Regulators of Color Coalition. That's an organization of a lot of us who have worked at the state level and seen what policies uh, were very well-intentioned but didn't work. Um, and then over time, we're improving them. So in that vein, we're making some recommendations to the Safe Banking Act. Um, I encourage people to check out. But I think in general, it's about making sure that we're not leaving things up to banks, but instead we're taking proactive measures to protect small businesses and minority-owned businesses, which is ostensibly everybody's goal. I thought it was interesting what you said about, you know, maybe we don't even want to put cannabis companies on the stock market. Maybe that's not the model we want to use. And there is this rush to sort of just like do what we always do when there's a new industry, throw as much money as it's possible, get a bunch of people rich. I mean, every time something new comes out, uh, like smartphones, for example, I mean, it, maybe we don't have to do that. And I maybe that would actually address some of the fears of these prohibitionists, like, uh, I'm not going to name them, um, but you know who I'm talking about. These organizations, these people that are dinosaurs and are still being like, oh, cannabis is a dangerous drug and we got to keep it illegal and all this other stuff. Otherwise, we're going to have a repeat of big tobacco or big alcohol or the Purdue Pharma thing, which we've talked about a lot on this show about how Purdue Pharma is kind of scapegoated for 
things that they didn't cause. They've caused a lot of problems. I'm not denying that. Fuck Big Pharma. But it's kind of disingenuous to compare that, okay, just because we're moving out of prohibition into a legalization phase, that it's going to be a repeat. It doesn't have to be a repeat of these big corporate conglomerates that are just pushing these drugs on people, basically. That's right. I think that we can be the most effective um, if we, we care about equity and justice by really recognizing that there is some validity in those concerns. But when you say, I'm trying to stop big tobacco by stopping legalization altogether, you're really not offering anything of value. Um, I love to talk to public health uh, experts and communities. That's my favorite group to work with because I so often find that um, they react the most to hearing ideas about how we can uh, move forward with legalization, but not allow corporate consolidation and influence because they're like starved for that, right? All they've been hearing from is these prohibitionists. And so many times their uh, concerns are completely valid. People who study big tobacco, I'm going to piss off your listeners here. You don't, if you don't mind, we just being completely honest. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, I think my mentor, one of my mentors, Carl Hart, has been on your show before. Yeah, yeah, he's great. This is great. a bit of an aside. I asked him once, how do you go through the thought process of um, telling people things that they are clearly not ready to hear, you know? Mm-hmm. And he said, I don't think about it. I just have to be honest. If I am lying by omission, you know, I couldn't live with that. So I'm just honest. So I took that to heart. And sometimes I just have to be honest. I want to say when it comes to big tobacco um, and when it comes to e-cigarettes and looking at the recent Juul decision, I don't necessarily agree with the FDA's decision, but I think that we are kidding ourselves if we act like these concerns about corporate monopolization are not real, right? I think that if you have a concern about Juul and you say they're 35% owned by Altria, which owns Philip Morris, And I'm worried that they're going to poison millions of people, you know, and they're going to target youth. There's a temptation to dismiss that, but that is an evidence-based rational concern. And I think that if we take that seriously and we talk about how to stop it, it actually makes us more credible um, and we bring in more people into our our coalition and we make it more effective. Yeah, I think that is an uncomfortable truth. Um, People especially with drugs, because it's tied to so many different things like mental health and medical health and all this other stuff. Like they get really scared if you're going to try to take away something. Um, Kratom is a really good example of that uh, because so many people use that as a replacement for prescription drugs. All these attempts to ban it, um, which I'm totally against, um, but all these attempts have really uh, freaked people out, justifiably so. And so, you know, I understand that the FDA just pulled Juul off the market and that's freaking a bunch of people out because they want access to this. But at the same time, uh, Juul's kind of an evil company (laughs) and I don't throw around the term evil very lightly. Like uh, they're not, while a lot of people have quit smoking using vaporizers and it's improved their health or it's at least been an alternative to cigarettes, which we know kills more people than pretty much any other drug. they're not marketing Juul as a, you know, um, 
a, a stop smoking drug. They're they're marketing as have fun. This is pleasure. Here you go. Just spend all your money and party. And 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 that's I have qualms with that. I'm also like you know also for bodily autonomy and for freedom, and people should be able to have fun if they want to with something like that. So it's it's a really hard uh, needle to thread there. Um, but it's important. We're, we're talking about who do we give control over our drugs, and I, I can't think of a more important question to be asking right now when it comes to to this situation. What I love about what you just highlighted is that harm reduction and regulation are not opposed. I think they actually go together. And so we can we can say don't ban, regulate, right? Definitely don't ban e-cigarettes. They're such a effective tool of harm reduction. But that doesn't mean that no matter what an e-cigarette maker does, you know, that they should be allowed to do it. So I encourage, you know, as a thought exercise that people should think about what would make you agree, say, with the decision to pull to put Juul, um, excuse me, what would make you agree with pulling the Juul products off the shelf, right? Everybody should have a line. And if you don't know where that line is, somebody is going to cross it and it'll be too late. That's a really good point. Are there any companies that you're especially concerned about when it comes to entering the cannabis space? It seems almost inevitable that that cannabis will be legalized federally. And then I think as soon as that happens, it, like these companies are just going to step in and take over. It, it seems like they're ready to do that. We're talking about Anheuser-Busch, Constellation Brands. These are major alcohol companies. You mentioned Altria. Are there any others that you're worried about or anything that people should be like, especially concerned about maybe? I'm generally concerned about companies getting so big that they can no longer be effectively regulated. Um, You mentioned Illinois before. I think Illinois had a really promising program, but it was held up by lawsuits. I think in the future, we haven't seen at all um, the power of the lawsuits that much bigger companies could potentially start, you know, and the problems that could cause. Uh, And then that leads to less effective regulation over time. So that's kind of a a general concern. Um, But Altria is my main problem right now because they are creating front groups uh, to kind of infiltrate the cannabis legalization movement, which is very much a playbook from Big Tobacco. Um, Another tactic from that playbook is to do your own research and put it forward as actual scientific research when in fact it is industry funded and executed research. So I'm worried about all of that. Parabola Center has actually um, written a model provision that would exclude or disqualify um, big tobacco from the industry. And I think that's important because every state with a functioning cannabis market actually excludes individuals based on um, past criminal conduct, sometimes even marijuana um, offenses, which makes no sense because that's what they're applying to do. And I think that that is not an effective way to regulate because um, it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with whether you can run a cannabis business or not. But if you are big tobacco, you've shown exactly why you shouldn't be allowed uh, into an industry that creates and markets drugs. So I think we should replace that approach of excluding individuals with something that excludes big tobacco. Yeah, I almost wonder if there's a model that would be like basically the government 
produces and provides all the drugs for the most part. Um, and I don't know how effective that would be. I don't even know if it's really been tried very well. But like, for example, we are, uh, it's, it's legal in the United States to have advertisements for pharmaceuticals. And I talk to people in other countries and they're just totally baffled by this idea that between sports or sitcoms, you can see, ask your doctor about this. Like, what, like it's such a weird thing. And it maybe you shouldn't be able to advertise drugs at all. I don't know how restrictive that is, how against freedom that is. I know that some people will probably cite the First Amendment against that, but maybe it's just like psychoactive substances. They exist and you get hard information about it. You don't get marketing language about how this will make you feel great and all this other. You just get the facts. If you up to me, they would all be, you could get any drug you wanted and they'd just be sold in brown paper with like a little card that explains it. Um, if you want to see government run stores, I recommend going to Montreal uh, because they have government run cannabis stores there. And it's really fun. It wasn't, it was not the best weed I've ever purchased. I don't want to oversell it, but to definitely like go in there and, and see how it works is worth witnessing. What, what was it like? I think that's also sort of the case in Uruguay. Um, but is, like when you walk in there, I mean, when I typically walk into a dispensary, there's like glass everywhere and shiny lights and packaging that's colorful. And I, you know, I I just went to one place a couple of months ago and they were like, you ready to have fun? And just like, we're, it was just like, it felt like going to laser tag or something. <laughs> I don't know why. I, I just felt like, this is weird. This is my medicine. I'm doing this for a lot of reasons i enjoy it i get a euphoric experience out of it that's like a plus but at the end of the day i don't need this to feel like a music video so how does that how did that work in montreal like when you walk in there like is what is it like it was quite basic i would say it was like similar to a dispensary that wasn't like that had no marketing budget (laughs) because you get in you get in line it was super efficient Um, And there were definitely a lot of warnings, but the warnings were not over the top. I think they were generally accurate. Um, And the labeling, uh, I thought was great. It was really clear, legible labeling with everything I wanted to know about the product. I was hoping it would be a higher product quality because then I would be able to say, like, look at this great program. Um, But if people say maybe government run drugs are not going to be very, uh, very high quality, they may have a point there. Oh, one other thing. Um, so there's a professor here uh, at Boston University, Jay Wexler. He's a law professor. He teaches uh, marijuana law. And he has watched the regulation in Massachusetts. And um, he has this great theory that uh, up until now, it's been what he's called grudging t- tolerance, where you generally just assume that marijuana is bad and we're going to allow it, but you know, keep the advertising restrictions as low as possible. And keep the security as tight as possible. And that's what you're focused on. And he says, instead, we should have careful exuberance. And what he means by that, it reminded me when you talked about um, how you get joy, you know, from your cannabis use, even though it's medicine, that we should include maximizing joy as one of the points of regulation. And we want to be careful about it. You know, we don't want to allow advertising to youth, et cetera. It doesn't have to feel like a video game. But that, you know, if you go into a cannabis cafe and you have a great time there, you know, and you feel good about your life, that is something that should be taken into account when we're regulating. I totally agree. I'm a little afraid that people are going to be listening to this and thinking, wow, Troy sounds really boring and not fun at all. But that's not what we're talking about here. It's it's more like 
it's just I hate marketing. Like it, it's inherently misleading. I, I took a photography class in college, and it was like commercial photography. And my professor was just like, "This is how you make money by taking photos." And I was like a purist. I was like, "No, I'm still shooting film, and it's all about art, and it's all about expression, man." And like he would piss me off when he's like, "Take your photos like this in order to." The way he put it was, you're trying to convince people to give you their money. You're trying to trick them into separating their money and giving it to you. And, like, I've always thought that that is just awful. Like, and you don't have to lie with marijuana. It's fun on its own. You don't have to put it, you don't have to call it all these stupid names like Rainbow Sprinkles, Unicorn, whatever. You know, I I bought a joint recently called Bootylicious, and I, I was... It, the, honestly, the name sold me on it. I don't look at the percentages, really. I think it's useless information. And I, it was a good joint. I'm, well, I'm not going to say it was bad, but I, I was just had to laugh because it's like I'm, I'm basically buying this because of the stupid name. Uh, and I think that the, we can reel that in at least or eliminate it entirely if that's even possible because when it comes down to people's health and their enjoyment and all that's unnecessary, in my opinion. I think you're making a great point. Like, first of all, we should just curb marketing and advertising when we're talking about drugs, period. Like, we need to be really rational about it. But then even with cannabis, where, like, you can't do that much harm, I think that uh, you suck all the fun out of it, right? When you go to a dispensary and it's really clear that you had, like, focus groups and marketing people who have probably never even used cannabis, like, sitting there and designing how to suck the most profit out of you, um, that's not cool or fun. Yeah, so many dispensaries, they're doing the Apple Store model. They're really just trying to make it look like that, like a, like you're buying a cell phone or something like that. It's, I don't know, it's a little weird. And I, I it, that definitely seems like the future, unfortunately. It, it, what do you think? I, I read something you, you, you did an interview recently. You, you said it looks like a pretty dystopian future when it comes to cannabis or drug regulation in general. Well, it depends on if we're staying on the path that we're on, you know, but like I said, I think the current legalization, the corporate led legalization movement is pretty ineffective. So we have a pretty serious chance to move to something better. And I feel optimistic about that because if the regulation is actually based on users um, and how they use cannabis and not, you know, what's going to make the most profit, uh, that's a pretty cool future, right? I, I would like to go to farmer's markets. I would like to go to events. You have that already in California, but most of the country doesn't. And I would love to see too what East Coast cannabis culture looks like once the stigma um, has been lifted here, because I think it's going to look a lot different from West Coast. It's worth, I think, a lot of work uh, because whatever we end up doing, whether we go the corporate route or the, the people route, we're going to be stuck with that for generations down the line. So we have a pretty awesome window of opportunity at this moment. Yeah, yeah. And I think talking about this and bringing up different ways of thinking about this, I mean, maybe some people just can't imagine a different sort of model. And I think that becomes really concerning when it comes to psychedelics because um, there's a huge explosion of interest in psychedelics. Thanks, Michael Pollan. It's all your fault. Um, but I, I have gotten pictures and encountered, uh, all these different psychedelic products that are branded just like cannabis edibles. Um, there was this one chocolate and it was really well done. Actually. Um, 
the chocolate was divided into these little triangles and then the packaging told you you know three to five triangles is like a threshold dose and five to ten is a is an average dose and then 15 or more that's a heroic dose and then i had a picture of terence mckenna and a little quote from him i mean that's harm reduction that's teaching people like hey don't eat this whole thing you're gonna have a bad time but at the same time i've also seen stuff that's like got cartoon characters on it and it looks just like a candy bar and this is a totally different than cannabis in a way or maybe it's not that different but Psychedelics are sacred for a lot of people, and commoditizing this, it, you start to encounter a lot more problems, I think. Yeah, um, I'll say in general, I, I've tried to um, get into the psychedelics regulation world as much as I can be helpful and bring over some lessons from cannabis. And there's a lot about the movement that makes me uncomfortable, frankly, Um but I will say this, what I love about it is that people are thinking about equity immediately, right? And, and the cultures that different substances come from. And one thing that's really interesting for me to watch is that I'm Indian. So cannabis has come from my culture and Chinese culture. But you will virtually never hear me talk about that because what's happened in this country, uh, that's so insignificant, you know, compared to what's happened to Black and Latino people. So the fact that um, people are interested in like a culture where you have a plant or an herb that's taken from you, you know, that is commodified and commercialized, like that happens so often and in so many ways. And like to actually, for the first time that I know of, try and prevent that from happening is really exciting. Um, but it's going to look very different from what cannabis equity looks like, I think. And so, like I said before, the details really matter when it comes to equity, and we don't want to move forward too fast and, and lose that opportunity. Yeah, there, there is a temptation to move forward fast because you just want to stop being, seeing people go to jail um, and have their lives ruined over uh, plants and fungus and stuff like that. You know, it's that's just absurd to me. And But if we don't think carefully about... Go ahead. There's a difference between um, stopping arrests, right, and um, and regulation and commercialization. So we could stop arresting people for psychedelics tomorrow. Um, and I think we should. And I think a lot of local places are, are taking that step anyways. But it doesn't mean that we have to rush forward with commercialization. Yeah. I mean, Vermont was a good example of that. They uh, legalized cannabis, but they didn't legalize uh, dispensaries or stores or anything. So it's basically just grow your own. But of farmers markets or something like that, maybe maybe I don't know how it was really how you'd get it from other people if it was illegal or not. Um, but eventually they rolled that back, and 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 now I think it's uh, sort of similar to other states where you can go to a store and buy it. It's a lot more commercial. Yeah, there. First of all, I'd love to see more of that initial model that they had. Yeah, where you you legalize possession, right? People often talk about decriminalization because that's where it's not a crime anymore, but it's still illegal versus legal commercialization. But there actually is a step in between where you can legalize possession. And that often means you can grow at home or you can share socially, uh, but you can't sell uh, for a profit. Um, Vermont is an interesting example. I think they've done a really good job uh, with their version of equity being focused on small farmers, especially 
and they have a really low um, license limit. You can only own one license in Vermont, so you can't come in there and, and dominate it. I think it's going to be a pretty important stake to watch. Can we talk about maybe the future of regulating other drugs? Because I would hope that that would happen at some point. I think that's a much better approach than uh, outright prohibition. Um, but, you know, a criticism I encounter a lot with the decriminalized nature movement, this is sort of a grassroots movement to decriminalize psychedelics in certain places, and it's been very successful in some regards. But I also think they're overlooking a lot of stuff. They're talking about plant-based medicine, but they don't include opium. They don't include coca. They don't include cat or cot or however you say it, um, kratom. There's a lot of different plant-based uh, medicines that, you know, people use and people could, I think, deserve access to opium, you know, compared to fentanyl that would save lives. Like if people could get something more mild, it would sort of help them with whatever feeling they're trying to elicit. Um, but yeah, what, what what does that look like? Like, I mean, that's sort of a, a prohibitionist uh, slippery slope, like, oh, you're going to legalize cannabis. Now you're going to legalize psychedelics. Next, you're going to legalize meth. Ignoring the fact that meth is already legal in prescription form, desoxin. Uh, but I don't know. What, what do you think about some of these? I hate the term. I don't want to use it, but like for other, for lack of a better term, hard drugs. Yeah. First of all, yeah, let's legalize meth. Let's legalize heroin. Let's legalize all of it, in my opinion. Don't, no question. I think uh, I generally support all decrim uh, efforts and anything that's going to end the war on drugs or take us in that direction, except for corporate monopolization. But this whole um, recent movement of separating good drugs from bad with the phrase in Massachusetts that's often used is entheogenic plants. And I don't know what entheogenic plants are. And I think it includes fungi. I find the whole thing very confusing. And I think the average person finds it extremely confusing. Um, but even if we did understand it, the fact that some drugs are being demonized um, just because they're not quote unquote natural, that doesn't make any sense to me. It's, it's a false equivalence. And even if it was based on science, it's not fair either. We know that from crack versus cocaine, we know that from meth versus Adderall. We know that with so many different kinds of drugs. I got started in the late nineties and, uh, the organization that, um, formed my initial thoughts was Transform Drug Policy Foundation which is a think tank in London. They have a wonderful book called um, After the War on Drugs, Blueprint for Regulation. And it really is a blueprint um, for how you could approach all different kinds of drugs, no matter how dangerous they are or supposedly safe they are. Um, they're all going to be different, but the point is that regulation works. And I don't think that we should demonize people or drugs or communities by suggesting that um, you know, in some cases, regulation is not going to work. That's that's just not true. Yeah. Blueprint for Regulation is a great book. I have it. Um, it's I love how it's just it really outlines it. It, it. it addresses a lot of different problems that could come up. And it's realistic. It's not like, hey, regulation or decriminalization or legalization will solve all our problems. Uh, but it will fix a lot of the problems that prohibition has artificially created. Uh, and to step forward. We're going to have to, you know, there's still going to be people that are going to take too much and freak out, but let's minimize that. And I, and I think that that's just smart evidence-based policy at the end of the day. And there is a huge amount of exceptionalism uh, when it comes to these drugs are good, these drugs are bad. Um, my drug's legal. I don't care about you going to jail for something 
And I, we got to stop that. that. That's a shitty attitude. Let's talk about uh, the regulator to industry pipeline. Um, a lot of people, this happens all kinds of different states. Um, they'll be behind this push to legalize cannabis or something else. And then a couple months later, suddenly they're on the board of a major company. How does this happen and what can be done about it? Um, so I mentioned I kind of shifted from racial justice to corporate monopolization. They're both kind of equity. But at one point, I, I felt that's where I needed to go. That was when John Boehner uh, joined the board of the marijuana company Acreage. Uh, it was just so disgusting to watch all of these legislators that were completely prohibitionists while they were in office. And then they come out of office and they can't do anything about that anymore, but they can go and lobby on behalf of marijuana companies. Um, it's sick to watch. Uh, there's also, I mentioned the Altria front groups. Those have former members of Congress as well. And then I've watched a lot of my peers, you know, who were the most ardent uh, anti-cannabis people now, you know, go, sometimes the term ends early, they leave, you know, to go join a marijuana company. Um, not only is it gross, it also means that we don't have very effective regulators if they're only in the position because they want to get a high paying job with industry afterwards. So I would love to see more, um, ethical rules put in place. You know, typically you have to wait a year before you can lobby the, organization that you came from or the government agency that you came from, those could certainly be made more strict. And I also just encourage people, if you're listening to this, a lot of times people haven't thought about becoming a regulator, even though they're super interested in drugs and regulation and science. And let me tell you, you know, if that's your interest, consider doing it. We need more smart people and we really need more people who understand drugs to be regulating them. So consider becoming a marijuana regulator. And if you don't do that, at least please call for um, call for some ethical rules so we don't keep seeing uh, you know this revolving door between industry and government. It is absolutely disgusting to hear stories of like Scott Perry, the former governor of Texas. He's apparently getting in on the psychedelics industry now. And it's like, I, I, I want to give people room to grow, to change their mind and, and okay, like you realize that you were wrong about this, but turning around and making a profit from it, it's, yeah, that's a complete conflict of interest and it's, it's absolutely gross. Um, Actually, you, you make a great point that I have not thought of, which is that, yeah, you shouldn't be barred forever. If you have that experience, of course, we want you in the movement, but maybe there's a step between, right, where you like build up your credibility by volunteering or otherwise doing something effective before you go on to the profit making part. Yeah, or give your profits away to some groups that have been doing this work for a long time, help other people that have been thrown in jail. It's it's so frustrating to see, you know, people are still in prison in states that have legalized while these white business owners are making money hand over fist. It's, it's ridiculous, which, you know, kind of brings me to drug war reparations. This is sort of a term that's thrown around a lot. Um, it's sort of related to like reparations for slavery, uh, you know, and I'm totally in favor of, of both. You know, like if your life was destroyed because of a stupid law that was written for racist reasons decades ago, uh, you should get some sort of reparations, I think. But what do you think that should look like? Um, no question, you should. Um, but I like the term fairness 
And forgive me for name dropping, but I have to credit where I got this from. I did a session with Killer Mike where I was like interviewing him about questions. And I asked him what he thinks about reparations or restorative justice or equity or something like that in the cannabis context. And he said, I actually don't use any of those words. And I especially don't use them in the South, which is important, right? Because that's where marijuana legalization is headed. He said, I talk about fairness and everybody understands it. And when we talk about marijuana, it is just so clear and undeniable that we've seen all of this harm. And so fairness would give back in some way. I think um, one key point about cannabis drug war reparations is that some people want to go into the industry. And so it helps to give them a leg up in terms of workforce development or licenses or ownership. But some people don't. They want nothing at all to do with cannabis, but they have still been harmed. And so we have to figure out a way to send benefits to them as well. Often that looks like um, tax uh, revenue reinvestment into certain communities and grants. I think Illinois is a, a good example of that, but there's probably a lot more that can be done. There's a few municipalities also. Um, Amherst, Massachusetts is one of them. And then I know uh, Evanston, Illinois is another that are looking at drug war reparations from local marijuana tax revenue. That's great. Uh, I guess we'll have to see how that works out because, you know, sometimes sometimes these efforts, they sound good, but then they don't accomplish anything. <laughs> right. Well, that was one of the first points I made, right? They're not going to yeah. work overnight. You have to watch them and collect data and tweak them. Exactly. This is sort of a weird question. Um, but, you know, we're living in a post-row world. Um, and maybe if more conservative people get into power, what do you think that might mean for the future of cannabis legalization? Uh, do you think it's possible weed could become illegal again? Um, I mean, I feel like there's not much to worry about in terms of this because there's so many financial interests now. There's cannabis lobbyists and everything that like there's less incentive to go after this. But everything feels uncertain right now. And I'm just wondering, like, if it's possible, if you think that we could just like roll back on some of these issues. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because um, it's hard to ignore it and be in this cannabis vacuum. Right? I don't want to live in a world where cannabis is legal and abortion is illegal. That's that's very messed up. Um, yeah, I think there's a huge backlash, actually, um, against uh, some of the racial momentum, racial justice momentum we've seen over the past few years. And I do think that is being incorporated into the way that people are opposing uh, legalization, especially in the South. But I think even in states like Massachusetts, you see a backlash where it's like kind of drug war 2.0 right now. And it's really concerning. And uh, it goes back to one of the initial things you said about when you go back to Texas, uh, you have to remember like what people are going through, even if it's really easy for us to get cannabis. Um, it could it could easily roll back. I think also uh, we have to kind of understand how to be effective. I love that I was in the early legalization movement because we did not get legalization by asking corporate overlords for help. And we did not get it by asking politely. Uh, we were very effective at that time. And I think nowadays um, Republicans are very effective. They were planning to repeal this for 30 years, right? And they got it done. And that's about as long as legalization took as well. So we have to look forward 30 years, decide what our vision is going to be in terms of drug regulation or anything else and put in the work for it. It's not going to happen overnight. Yeah, definitely. Um, 
Well, do you have any tips for people who are trying to positively influence policymakers? I do. I um, I learned a lot because I was lobbied by the best paid uh, lobbyists in Massachusetts, and I kind of learned how they work. And a lot of it is actually um, personality based and not really um, rational or persuasive or facts. It's just it's very lonely being a policymaker. I was lucky because I had an infrastructure and community already as an activist. But most people don't. And most policymakers are constantly getting yelled at more and more by the day. Um, and sometimes lobbyists just get what they want by being nice. So that is not to say that you should just be nice to policymakers all the time. And I'm not saying we need more civility or anything like that. What I'm saying is, if you want to be strategic and effective, just understand that it's very difficult for policymakers to be bold. Um, every incentive that you have is to like lower expectations, do nothing, and then leave and go to industry. And so if you're trying to be bold and transparent with the public, it helps to have positive reinforcement and it helps to have solutions from people who are impacted. So I would say um, if you are talking to a policymaker and you're impacted by something and you want to criticize it, definitely go ahead and criticize it. And then also offer a solution every time, offer to help with that solution. And then if you see them implementing the solution, give them positive reinforcement as well. All right. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Shaleen Title. Um, and you can follow the nonprofit, nonpartisan think tank Parabola Center at Parabola Center on Twitter or Instagram. Great. Thank you so much for coming on. This is a, kind of a wonky topic. I know that drug policy is probably not the most interesting thing for some people, like the ins and outs of how do we write laws, but uh, it really is important. Um, I'm looking forward to the future of this, and I, I really want to see more people have a, a seat at the table when it comes to this topic. Yeah. If you love drugs, I hope you care about drug policy, too. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Narcotica, an independent production by Troy Farah, Christopher Moraff, and Zachary Siegel. I'm your co-producer, Aaron Ferguson. If you like the show, you can find out more at narcocast.com and support us by joining our Patreon. Just go to patreon.com forward slash narcotica. Patrons get free stickers, which are personally mailed to them, and can request a shout-out on the show. And now, patrons can even get 30% off merch in our new store, which is at narcocast.myshopify.com. We have t-shirts and coffee mugs, one that says, there are drugs in here, which is awesome. More stuff will be added soon. As always, we're so grateful to the folks that make this show possible.